ideal is to instead ask, where are you from? Or like, you know, assume that you're different is to ask, where are you going? And I think that is a little bit of a uniting question. It's a forward-looking question. It's an opportunity question. It's about what is your vision? Where are you from? And like, what could we do together? That's a much more like open-ended lightning question. Welcome to Latinx in Power, a podcast that will share stories of amazing Latinx leaders. Hosted by Thaisa Fernandez, a proud Latina in tech, program, and product manager living in Silicon Valley and sharing her experiences. Welcome to Latinx in Power. I'm so honored to have Valerie Villarreal with us today. Hi, good to be here. Nice to see you, Thaisa. Valerie is a product manager who has worked at the biggest social platforms of our time, Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. Her first product role began as an intern at Amazon in 2011, where she got her first taste of beauty and growing user products that scale to millions and billions of users globally. Valerie is a Latinx in power because she's successful on paper, but more importantly, because she has worked to find her authentic voice in space where she was one of the few, the only, or didn't feel she belonged. In this episode, we'll talk about coming from a humble background and clawing your way to break into power and privilege and using it to make space for others. Where does your life story begin? For my parents, um, and my uh, dad uh, immigrated to the U.S. from Mexico along with nine siblings. Uh, he came from a rural town, lived in a small house in East Los Angeles. He met my mom, and both of them uh, lived the working class, paycheck to paycheck uh, reality of being working poor. I remember as a kid, I, I had an awareness of survival and poverty ever since I was like five or six. I remember the concept mm -hmm. of rent and counting the dollars in my mom's wallet and seeing if we would have enough money and helping her mm -hmm. write letters to family to ask for money. Um, I used to uh, eat sandwiches with purely mustard, no meat. I got free lunch at school and was a little bit bullied for it. I, I had a tough upbringing. Uh, I live, we lived in a small apartment. It was on like a very busy highway. And I remember there was so many cars driving fast that people were run over in front of my house. And, and it was very traumatic. I couldn't really play outside as a kid. You know, in some, I grew up from a, a upbringing that was about being hungry, ashamed, stressed, And I hated those feelings. And uh, but that was also the greatest gift of a tough upbringing uh, because it gave me an intense drive um, to get away, to um, earn. I think the inflection point was when I started to, at the age of 10, like sell goods for money at the swap meet. I used to take my mom's old makeup samples and sell them. And the first time that I earned a hundred bucks when I was 10, I, I thought I was really powerful. So that was like the the catapult for me to be able to say, I have earning power um, and, and I could do that for my family and maybe for my community. You know, that led to the leaps of getting into education and technology so that I could break away from that upbringing. Really inspiring story and interesting that you always had this mindset. And where, where did you find your voice? You know, my parents didn't teach me to speak up. Um, and in fact, I think they lived in fear. I remember being five years old and learning that my dad wasn't 
fully a U.S. citizen. He, um, you know, wasn't in a position to defend his rights in this country and still really isn't to date, even though he is a U.S. citizen. My mom, um, you know, she passed away, but she worked long hours, um, worked overtime, worked weekends and didn't get paid for that overtime, which is illegal. But they were both afraid to demand their rights with their workers or with society, really. And I was the opposite. Um, I think just because I wanted to be different than them. Uh, I think all of us want to be different than our parents in some ways. And I remember um, finding my voice in um, actually in religious education. Um, I remember the teachings of some of the things that the nuns would tell me. And it just didn't feel right. Like, why can't, you know, gay people get married? Why can't a woman become a priest, even though the nuns are doing all the work? I asked all these mm -hmm. questions and to some degree, it wasn't totally respected. But it, the more that they pushed back, the more the louder that I got. I think I learned how to speak up for myself, especially in high school. I got motivated to run for school president and I, I was president for three years. And and that's like the first like um, breeding ground where I learned how to like have a vision, bring people along and like try to uh, disrupt the status quo so that other people who are oppressed wouldn't be um, silent. It's interesting how uh, this is so common, especially coming from immigrants. A lot of times we are afraid to speak because maybe because we feel that it's not our place or maybe because our life here is so much better or privileged or different. So we are afraid to complain or speak our mind. But I'm glad you find your voice since a really young age. Thank you. I think it's a service to society. It's not that we're just trying to make it better for ourselves. But I think if we have a bunch of people that are silent, we're missing out on other people's ideas, um, other people's richness. And so it's a shame for everyone if not everyone um, has their voice heard. So thank you. What does it mean to be a Latina for you? Being a Latina is, it's an important piece of my identity, but it's not everything. I mean, I think in college, I started to first have a real identity. I grew up in a largely Mexican-American community. Most of the kids in my high school were first-generation American like me, speaking mostly English in school. Our parents were immigrants. Um, we didn't know our identity until I went to college. And when I went to Stanford, where it was predominantly white and it was also very international, that's when I had a strong sense of, These people are different than me. Who am I? Um, and it was only until I then found people that were from a similar first generation Latino background that I really got to latch on to my identity because I needed to know where I fit. Um, and I found um, community in El Centro Chicano at Stanford, which is like the Latino student group. It's called Mecha, but it's like this Chicano student student um, activism group. That's where I found my first like real sense of being a Chicana at that time is how I would identify myself. And that's a term for Mexican-Americans who grew up in, in the Southwest. It's a bit of a regional term. And of course, that Latina identity has evolved. And I respect all of the contributions of Latinos in society now. Of course, the Shakiras and the JLos and all the passionate, loud women out there. But I also have an identity as a mom, as a wife, as a progressive, as a yogi, as a cat lover. There's so many different labels. But I think in tech, just to pause on that, like for me, being a Latina means outspoken, passionate, hardworking, but oftentimes underestimated. Mm -hmm. And I think Arlen Hamilton, um, the founder of Backstage Capital, has written a book about you know, how underestimated women of color are. As it relates to VC funding, 0.2% goes to black women, but only 0.4% goes to Latinx women. 
I once pitched a, a startup um, for VC funding and I got some traction, but they really wanted to pay me a ramen salary. And I couldn't afford that because I wanted to have a family. I wasn't going to go this far to live in poverty again and be in mm -hmm. financial scarcity. So it's there's a lot of barriers to getting um, uh, Latin-backed founders. But um, also being Latina means not well represented in tech. We hold less than one or 2% of technical and leadership roles in our industry. Mm. Um, that's a problem. And then, you know, the last piece is about being underpaid and, and poorly compensated. Compensated. And while the average woman in the U.S. makes 80 cents on the dollar of a man, that number drops to 61 cents for black women and 53 cents for every dollar for a Latina. So a Latina makes, she has to work twice as many hours in order to earn what her white male counterpart does. And I think that is unfortunately the Latina story of today. And it can't be that the Latina story going forward. Yeah, thanks for sharing that and thanks for sharing those numbers. I think it, it's so important to talk more about that. You found a way into many hot companies in Silicon Valley already. You worked at Amazon, Snapchat, Facebook and Instagram. How did you find your way there and into the role of product management? Was that always your dream job? No, it, this was not my dream job. I had no idea what this was. I had no exposure. Mm -hmm. You only know what you see. And I didn't know anybody in tech. I I was at Stanford in 07 when the biggest companies were coming to bear, but I had no friends in computer science. How would I have known that technology existed? It wasn't until really a decade later. You know, in college, I my dream was actually to get into politics. As you can tell, I always wanted to uh -huh. be an advocate. I wrote my college senior thesis on political science and corporate diversity. I advocated on campus. And so I, I spent internships in Washington, D.C., um, working for a U.S. senator, working for nonprofits. But I saw that those people that were working in politics or activism were either broke themselves or living off of their parents. And I couldn't do either because at that time I was still sending money back to my mom to help her pay rent. Like every week or month she would call me and we would, it was so sad. I, she was like negotiating like how much money I could give her, lend her. And, and it was a tough situation. So I had to earn money from, from day one. So I started focusing on how can I increase my earning potential back to, you know, that 10 year old girl selling, selling makeup. And I didn't know anyone in business, but I got involved in the undergrad business club. I was intimidated. I was the only Latina, but I forced myself to attend these like corporate recruiting events that were big on campus. I was lucky. I was at Stanford. Everyone wanted to recruit at that time, which is uh, um, not necessarily the thing right now. But um, I went to these events and actually some of my Latina friends mocked me. And, and it was tough because they were like, oh, you're going to be a sellout. Like, why are you not helping the community? And I was like, you need to oxygen mask, like take care of yourself first. And I need to provide for myself, and my family. So I'm sorry, I'm unapologetic about this. I'm going into business. So I ended up joining the most exclusive consulting firm in McKinsey, partially because I was rejected by the others, but it was good training to get into McKinsey. But I transformed myself to work as, you know, um, a rough around the edges, 21 year old, fresh out of college into this polished corporate environment where you're working with executives. And, and I really enjoyed that. Um, it was great exposure. I had to learn how to like understand business models and finance and strategy and marketing and organization design, all these things. It was like a boot camp in business. But finally, I found product manager as the ideal role um, in this century. Um, and I think it's because like has um, a focus on what is a user problem? What is a customer problem? And then working with 
everyone who has the skills to build a solution for that between engineers, data scientists, designers to make it come to life. And I think actually like there's a lot of like being a Latina that really suited me well to being a product manager. One is an empathy and passion for users. Like Latinx are very community or oriented. They're thinking about what is the pain? What is the experience? Um, how does the system fail us and how do we make it better? Um, so that like problem solving and like system thinking of like, how do we move the chess pieces in order to like advance our objectives subject to constraints? That's product management. And that is what Latinos do best. And then the drive and hustle. I mean, look, nobody gets it done like immigrants. Um, we have we have the, the adversity um, resilience muscle to turn a no into a yes and make something happen despite the odds and shoot for moonshots. So that's how I came into product. And I specifically focus on a type of product called growth, which is how do you get us to acquire new users? How do you get them to download your app? How do you get them to activate to unlock the best benefits of the product? And then how do you get them to retain so that they keep finding value over and over again? And it's easy to, to launch an app, have people download it, but it's really hard to get the, to get it to stick. Um, and that requires finding what the industry calls product market fit, which is like, mm -hmm. how do you find the right pain point and the right solution that continues to add value over time such that you just have incredible tailwinds to growth? And so few products hit that mark. And I've been lucky to be able to work and learn from platforms that have that product market fit and help them scale to the next level, whether it is expanding to new international markets, expanding to new demographics, or helping users learn and kind of engage with new features that will help them uh, kind of continue to find value on the product. So that's, that's my profession now, and that's my journey. I think this is a topic I'm seeing all episodes. Everyone is talking about how our past experience and to the experience we are having right now, even though sometimes they, you might feel that they don't have anything in common. And in our, in your case, I can see how political science, being a Latina and being a product manager, they all relate and add to each other. Thank you for seeing that. Um, that's exactly the message that I want to share. And I think that being an underrepresented Latina gives me the superpower of empathy to connect with users who feel mm -hmm. isolated, who feel yeah. left out, who feel like they don't get it or that the product doesn't get them. Um, and I love to try to help everyone feel like the product was built for them. That's my mm -hmm. desire. And that's actually what all businesses want, personalization. And so like mm -hmm. I have that ability to see around the corner to anticipate where the user is and then work with my team to try to get as close as possible to that expectation and exceed it. I also think that, you know, being with, um, we know that culture innovates from the edges of society. Culture innovates from the youth. Culture immigrants from immigrants. Culture in innovates from people that are outside of the core box. And so I love seeing um, our products used by real world people on the street. Mm -hmm. Like I remember when I was working at Snapchat and I was working on new lenses, uh, you know, or some people call them as face filters. The rainbow puke lens was very popular then. Yeah. And I would see the kids on the street using it. I was so excited. And then I would like go to the bar back then. And, and I would literally go up to strangers at the bar while I was waiting for my drink. And I would say, have you tried the new Snapchat lens? Hey, here, try it. And I would like make them download it and like 
try to see the delight on their face. So I was just so passionate about, um, about that. But, um, you know, at the same time, um, you know, it is, it is lonely being a Latina in tech. Like, you know, a lot of times it's, it's working with, you know, largely male dominated engineering teams. Mm-hmm. It's pitching your ideas to largely white male dominated executives to fund mm-hmm. your, uh, your idea or support your idea. And sometimes it feels like a battle just to defend myself and my ideas and just do my, my job. But, um, it's also exhilarating to be the one of the few representing mm-hmm. and to know that like, if I'm not there, who's going to be there to ask the tough yeah. questions. So that's like what I feel is my, my calling. Yeah. What's your favorite thing about those experiences you had in tech? I think it is calling out the user who's left out the user that mm-hmm. others haven't thought about. Um, because almost like everyone's focused on the power user of today, but I'm thinking about the power user of tomorrow. And I, and I feel like I have a special capability to be able to empathetically connect with them and figure out what is keeping them from being included in our service. Um, and so I think what I hope to do um, over the next kind of years is really integrate like inclusive thinking into product development. And we're not totally there yet, um, but that's like a practice that I want to um, build a muscle. I read your article about inclusion and diversity that you posted on LinkedIn. You wrote that even companies who are horrendous and diverse representation can still have inclusive managers and colleagues. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, so I, I think first let's break this area down because there's so much talk and hype around diversity and inclusion. I just want to explain it in really concrete, no BS terms. So, you know, uh, for me, diversity is you think of the pie chart, like who's represented in the company, who like, you know, how many of your engineers are diverse, how many of your team is diverse, how many of your leadership is diverse. The second part is inclusion. So of those people um, that are on that pie chart, do they feel like they belong? Are they supported? Do they retain? Do they stick around? We talk about the retention curve and product management of people that churn out. What is the churnout rate for diverse employees in this industry? Or do they walk away? And finally is equity. Everyone talks about equity. What does that mean? For me, that means um, getting paid your fair share. And that's about, are you leveled fairly? Are you rewarded competitively? Are you evaluated fairly without bias? Those are the three components of diversity, inclusion, and equity that I would like to start as a ground context for our conversation. You talked about inclusivity and diversity being a job of everyone in the company, not just the managers and diversity committees. Can you share with us your thoughts about what people can do to help to create a more inclusive environment? I wrote about this um, this concept on Medium of that I coin inclusive mindset. And mm-hmm. it's a play on growth mindset, which is researched by Carol Dweck out of Stanford and is very hyped up right now. Like everyone has a growth mindset, like your capabilities are not innate. You have to reinvent yourself. You have to flex and build new muscles through perseverance and and making it a practice. And I think inclusion is the same way. Like inclusion isn't innate. Nobody is necessarily born to be able to um, kind of understand others and like get over their similar to me biases. And so how this played out in my life, because I didn't really have a manager or a senior leader in my organization who shared my Latina identity. Um, but, the, but there's a couple people that really helped me like 
kind of up level despite that. Um, I remember in my first job, there was a senior partner at McKinsey and he was like um, very traditional, you know, older white guy, looked the part, like his picture on the website, like who you would expect as a executive. Um, and in my first performance review, he said, you know, Val, you're really different than everyone else here, but you could be a partner at this firm and you would be incredible because your customers would love you and you would be great at developing business. And that boosted my confidence. I am a short person and I stood like a foot taller that day. So that was like an inclusive mindset he had. Also, um, my undergrad professor, where in one of my first college classes, like I was super intimidated because I was a first gen kid. I went to a not so great high school and I was with all these other kids. I went to fancy prep schools. I felt like my essays weren't as good. And so he saw that and he created time to do weekly office hours with me to give me extra feedback and validate me. I needed that. He gave his time and that was having an inclusive mindset. Finally, another example like of how you can be inclusive within even despite what the company culture is like I was in a different company where the company culture was rough as a woman, rough as a Latina, rough as anything other. There was one colleague, um, a white guy, actually, he, um, you know, saw that in meetings. I was sometimes undermined or overlooked, but he took time to listen with me, to hear me vent. <laughs> and he eventually defended my work when my manager didn't. All of those were white male allies. They were very powerful micro actions. For me, it's about allies showing up and taking micro actions, you know, versus kind of downplaying the, the microaggressions. That's kind of the spirit that I want to evangelize for people to understand. And I think it's also important to keep in mind there's also some nuances. So you might feel included in some groups and some teams and might feel excluded in others. So I think it's important to keep an eye on that and also speak up and help each other and have empathy and don't think that, oh, this problem is solved because it might not. Maybe you don't know, or maybe in another group, another team, another product, this person, it's excluded and you have no idea because maybe you're not paying attention. That's a great point. And I think a lot of the traps, like the other side of it, they're not always like malintentioned at all. Um, yeah. I think they're just like weak inclusion capabilities. Um, and so mm -hmm. like one example of this is like people who are really insecure or awkward to talk about diversity and inclusion. Like, like, you know, I had, I had one teammate who was um, really thoughtful and powerful and influential in so many other projects. And when I brought some of these ideas and, and proposals up, you know, they froze. They were so afraid, like uh -huh. petrified. And that's not helpful for them or for the organization. Also to kind of claim that we are in like a colorblind society, that everyone's the same and, and there's no issues. That's kind of a state of denial. That's not helpful. Yeah. And of course, we don't need to talk about all of the kind of microaggressions of all of the kind of difficult things that come up that we don't have, a, we don't really have a safe space to talk about that. That's, I think, what your podcast can help us all kind of be aware of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I remember one of the first jobs I had here, I worked with someone and the person knew I'm Brazilian and she was like, oh, you have an European style. And I was like, what does it mean? And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> oh, lack of context. Yeah. And lack of exposure. And that's why. But like the fact that we're so underrepresented exacerbates that lack of exposure because we're the only exposure they have. So we have a lot of work to do. Is that one quote you love to live by? Yeah, I've I've been thinking about this a lot lately. The mantra that I'm coming up with is like, don't ask us, so where are you from, really? 
Instead, mm-hmm. ask us, where are you going? Look, like I, I carry a good amount of privilege. Like I'm educated, I'm a light-skinned Latina, like mixed race. But, you know, as soon as someone sees my last name or they hear me talk differently with mm-hmm. my accent, um, at least a quarter or half of the time, you know, in Silicon Valley and pretty much anywhere I go, I get asked, you know, so where are you from, really? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm from I'm from L.A. And that's where I grew up. They're like, no, no, you can't be. But really, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm American. I have papers I can show you. Like, it's this question triggers my insecurity so deeply. It's back to that five-year-old girl that was worried about um, my dad's citizenship status. And, you know, there's an implicit assertion that also where my family is from is the most defining kind of element of my identity and it's important it's my story but like that's a lot of baggage that's like bringing people Mm -hmm. back holding them back and so I think ideal is to instead ask where are you from or like kind of you know assume that you're different is to ask where are you going and I think that is a little bit of a uniting question it's a Mm forward-looking question it's an opportunity question it's about what is your vision where are you from and like Mm -hmm. what could we do together that's a much more like open-ended lightning question versus one that's that's unintentionally triggering yeah you can have a lot of interesting conversations is starting with that. I always joke that sometimes, really, I say hi, and the person, where are you from? I was like, I just said hi. <laughs> yeah, it's extra, it's extra baggage for sure. It definitely like, it just kills the energy. Um, so yeah. it's, it's just not fun for anyone. Yeah, for sure. Someone in your LinkedIn mentioned that you get things done. And I think this is an amazing quality to have. What recommendation would you give to someone to craft this mindset or even get more things done? Yeah, I think this is super important. You know, I think because there's so few of us and because we really have to prove ourselves, I think there's an implicit expectation um, that we need to be better than our mainstream counterparts because Mm -hmm. the perceptions are stacked against us. The perception, you know, that I've heard from, you know, colleagues or back in college, you've only got here because you're Latina or, you know, affirmative action. And, you know, that gives me an extra drive to constantly prove that I'm adding value. And I think um, that getting stuff done is, um, you know, about making sure that like my performance review or that like my track record of outcomes is undeniable so that if there's any bias in the system that I can defend myself. And I remember like preparing for performance reviews when I was like, a, you know, young in my career, summaries of impact, growth, accomplishment, milestone, metrics, um, wins, all of those things. Like I think without those, I would feel like I don't have any armor to defend myself. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important, you know, for any, you know, Latinx who wants to gain influence or be respected, it's to constantly like, you know, keep a scoreboard of what have you achieved lately? What am I achieving this week, this month, this half? I don't define my personal worth um, by these like kind of uh, professional accomplishments, but I think it does define my commercial worth. It does define my financial earning. um, And as a provider in my family, that matters. So we don't have like the capacity in Slack to just like, hope that we will be liked and rewarded for that. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that you can have a space, a moment, a certain period of time that you can relax, not just think about getting things done. Oh, 100%. I mean, there's so many times that I I think part of my experience of, um, you know, grinding from a young age, you know, working for money since I was 10, like, there's been moments of burnout. Um, and so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, 
you're not going to be good to the world if you're not good to yourself. Um, and there's been a lot of like philosophers and kind of spirituality teachers and research that shows like you need moments of stillness, of silence, mm -hmm. of inaction, of boredom, of mm -hmm. rest, of vacation, of downtime, of unplugging in order to have you know, creative, efficient mental health and productivity. So I don't want to be one of those people that like does the like hustle, like uh, romanticizing hustle at all costs. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And what has been your proudest moment personally or professionally? Yeah, well, I think that that's, you know, a good segue on what we were just talking about um, and kind of what matters in life. I think the pride comes not with what I've achieved, but what I overcame. You know, I remember um, like surviving a precancerous health scare when I was a teenager and I was dealt a tough blow of infertility, which is something that we don't talk about in our community much. There's a lot with that, but through great sacrifice and perseverance, I was eventually able to become a mom. And, you know, becoming a mom is like my most proudest My, my proudest milestone. And um, our son is now two years old. He's a strong boy. Um, we named him Benito Cuauhtémoc for the first president of Mexico who is a poor indigenous outsider and uh, the great Aztec emperor. He's our pride and joy. That's what matters in life. Uh, you know, I survived a lot of mental health challenges, like the anxiety, depression, like the kind of PTSD of having growing up a hard immigrant life, like, you know, but yet it's even taboo in our culture to talk about some of these things. It's just like, you know, pray about it. <laughs> don't talk about it. Don't get professional help. Don't get medication. Don't, you know, don't do yoga. Like there's a lot of, I think, um, unhealthy taboos around mental health in our community. Um, and so I've learned various meditation, spiritual, holistic healing practices in order to feel whole mm -hmm. again. And I'm really proud of um, not being afraid to talk about that. And like, hopefully that helps one more person be okay to open up and ask for help. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your story. And what tips would you like to share with other Latinx around the globe, especially the first generation immigrants? I think a couple of things like we don't know, we don't see and we no one has given us, you know, an apprentice guidebook. We have not a lot of us, unfortunately, some of us have, but a lot of us haven't grown up around business people, around technologists, around professionals. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, these are some of the tips that I've learned in my experience, and I hope to pass it along. And I think first is, you know, whatever you're trying to do in your profession or your educational career is like kind of understand the decision makers, the rules of the game. And I call it almost like the chess pieces. Like mm -hmm. if you want to get a job or you want to move ahead or you want to get accepted to a program, understand who's deciding who can be the, the allies and sponsors that can help move the chess pieces for you because you may only be a pawn. And I've felt like a pawn many times. You need like mm -hmm. a knight or a bishop to help advocate for you. Secondly is, I think, the give and take of gaining political capital. And this applies, mm -hmm. like, you know, in the workplace or, or anywhere, really, relationships. But, like, you kind of want to have a right balance of, like, putting points on the board and adding value. And then the give and take of using that capital for things that you want to get achieved. Um, so, like, when I join a new job, I'm kind of really keen to, like, make some quick wins, um, you know, uh, show that I can like advance the business objectives. And then when the moment comes for me to like speak up and advocate for like inclusion or kind of things that I feel are personally important, I have some leverage. And then if I go too far on that spectrum, I have to go back, double down on the business goals and get more influence mm -hmm. so that I can then, it's like, you know, kind of chips in a casino. 
And then the last piece is also talking about money and focusing on mm-hmm. money. We, um, you know, there's a lot of like uh, taboo about talking about money, whether you're a woman, whether you're, you know, a person of color, you know, it's life is about love and family, which it is, but money is also important too. Mm-hmm. And so talking about, you know, compensation and what are your goals? Like I'm talking about that with your manager and your teams trying to figure out like, am I paid fairly? And there's a lot of like websites like, one called Levels FYI, which like gives like pay grade um, compensation bands so that you can have some data points to talk about money and knowing where you're going. Like, you know, if you don't have a safety net, you got to think about, well, when do I want to retire? How much money do I need when I retire? How do I work backwards from that? That's like the financial education that um, is going to prevent us from not having to work into our late 70s. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. those are things that no one has taught me, but I, I'm now just at 35 starting to focus on. You often talk about advocating within tech and also about surviving the trauma of the immigrant experience, racism and poverty in the U.S. How do you see the contrast of raising a child in the privileged Silicon Valley? Oh, it's such a such a big thing. I think about it all the time. We're in Palo Alto right now, like in a renting renting a house that has a yard. And you know, before the pandemic, I had some foresight um, and luck to you know get him a swing set, a trampoline, a little mm-hmm. mini basketball hoop, a soccer set, like you know, a big library of books, all of these things. Um, and none of the things that I had as a kid. Um, I remember having like one ball and just throwing it against the wall, and that's how I spent my youth. And we're raising a child that's going to have immense more privilege than than uh, we did. You know, he's young. He's just two years old. But as he gets older, I think having, you know, a wise um, spiritual teacher, you know, once told me, like, don't pray for an easy life. Pray for strength and resilience for your child. And I think that's right. Like, I don't want to be necessarily like a tiger mother that says, oh, okay, you need to go to Stanford like I did. You need to have GPA like this. You need to study coding and math uh, as a four-year-old. Like, I kind of see myself as like uh, what I'm calling like a lion mother. Um, and for me, that is like the ability to hunt. That is ability to have a pride. That is the mm-hmm. ability to, um, you know, be aggressive and like wrestle with others to in order to survive because you know as we know now in 2020 that generation my kids generation is going to have immense challenges that nobody knows how to solve climate change um economic disruption uh you know migration patterns social strife public debt um there's so much so uh, i want a kid who's a survivor i don't want a kid who's just an achiever Interesting. So you're teaching your child to be problem solver rather than an achiever and having problem solver skills, he can do whatever he wants. And this is amazing. I want to finalize this episode with first thanking you, Valerie. That was amazing. And I also want to finalize with kindness. How important it is to be a positive influence within your stakeholders and your team. You know, it's so important. Um, And, you know, I'll admit, like, you know, sometimes I've, you know, I've failed on this to some degree um, before (laughs) I talk about, you know, what works. And it's not that I'm a mean person at all or like, um, but I think, you know, especially with the pandemic, working from home, sometimes we don't have a lot of patience and we want to be like very efficient and like transactional and like, you know, Mm -hmm. this is the project to get done. Like, you know, are you working on it? And like, 
kind of not being very relationship oriented, just being efficient, especially with like work chat in the beginning of the pandemic, I was over reliant on um, being task oriented and I was mm -hmm. under invested in the relationships. And I think now we need to be the opposite because there's mm -hmm. so much going on between like the fires that we're having, not having air quality, not being able to like, um, you know, take care of ourselves and see our family and friends. It's a very hard time. Um, so for me, kind of what kindness means is um, taking an interest in what is most important to that person and being present for that, even if you can't necessarily do anything about it. But like I've, I think, you know, tried to have more conversations that are um, relational to say, like, what's important to you right now? Is it getting promoted? Is it being less lonely? Is it finding meaning? Is it being closer to your family? Is it getting a puppy? Is it finding peace? Like, and, you know, I think kindness is a, is a curiosity in the other person for who they are um, and just being there for them. Um, and I think 2020 has taught us that life is short. So we should all be asking what matters and telling each other, telling each other what that is so that we can um, work towards it like there's no tomorrow. It's a great point. Yeah, I think I'll just close by like kind of acknowledging that. Um, and the time that we're in, like we've learned a lot from the Black Lives Matter movement um, mm -hmm. this year and a lot around confronting the own like kind of anti-Black racism in our own community, listening to our Afro-Latino voices, knowing, you know, the unique challenge of, you know, the bias and the harm against, you know, our Black friends and 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 community members. So being there for them. And I think we're also kind of stepping into the Latino Hispanic Heritage Month, which is a lot of time yeah. when people, you know, companies will try to like, you know, throw salsa parties and taco mixers. But like more important than that is talking about the real issues of like where we are as a community, how we're doing right now with COVID, with economic harm, with um, kind of equity. And then also the vast, vast potential that the Latino and Latina Latinx community brings in the future um, for a growing population, a young population and huge economic power. So I think that's something to celebrate and to raise awareness for. That's why we're here. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much. That was incredible. Thank you. I had so much fun and I love the community and I'm happy to help other people who are just in the longer way. We had amazing learnings today. We talked about once you gain power, it's important to find and using your voice to represent and advocate for inclusion. All of this while trying to stay human, healthy and whole as a mom in these pandemic times. That's it for today. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll have more interviews with amazing Latinx every first Tuesday of the month. Check our website, latinxempower.com, to hear more. Don't forget to share comments and feedback, always with kindness. See you soon.